lovelies. lovelies. <laughs> good morning. It's good to see you. Love hearing the sounds of kids. Love hearing the sounds of connection, the passing of the peace. Um, and, and it's nice to survey the room and see some faces I do not recognize, as well as some familiar ones. And so welcome, however you've come into this space. It's great to have you here. Uh, my name is Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm delighted to be with you today here at the Japanese Hall in this space. And hello to everyone joining via live stream as well. Thanks for being with us virtually. And can we just give shouts to our tech team? It takes a village. <laughs> as we've been saying, it takes a village to do a live stream. And so this is our little village over here, a live stream village. Should stop on that thread for a while and just keep going on the sermon. Um, I don't know what your relationship is like to social media these days. Mine is complicated. Um, maybe yours is too. I have a lot of feelings about social media. I love it, I hate it, and uh, everything in between, depending on the moment. So I need to take breaks. I took a break in July. I'm thinking about making that an annual thing, but that's a really long rabbit hole as well. I'd love to hear if we have a chance to actually chat, how, how is it going for you? One thing I do like about the socials, however, provided I'm in a healthy enough space to wield it, is that it gives me access to the wisdom and insight of a wider circle of influencers. There is no shortage of good or even great content available if you know where to look and can stay disciplined in looking only there. Back in May, I came across one such Facebook post by a guy called David Fitch. David Fitch is an author, professor. He's rooted in Anabaptism. His post was titled, Top Five Issues for Church Leaders Coming Out of COVID. Now, I already knew and respected Fitch's voice, so the heading alone caught my attention. We circled it through our staff team and lead team and shared it. And so I'm going to put up these five issues that he named on the screen. As I read them, if you're comfortable doing so, could you put up a hand if you felt that particular point? It doesn't have to be the main thing for you, just if you resonate at all with each one of these points, just put up a hand. Let's normalize some vulnerability around this. And I'll just say already, my hand is gonna be up for all of them. So, um, ready? Here we go. First, people's broken relationships revealed by the isolation of COVID. Needed spaces for relational connection. A few of us have felt that. Two, and just keep mine up now. People deconstructing their faith after the props to their faith were taken away by COVID needed spaces for deconstruction. Yeah. Three, people's anger and rage at various coercions or abuse in their lives, including racism, sexual abuse, misogyny, all of which were intensified in COVID needed spaces for lament and unwinding the antagonisms. And felt that. Four, people's fatigue from the constant drudgery of moving through the blunt challenges of COVID needed. Spaces for celebration of God's sustaining power and hope for a future. Yeah. Five, people's grief over losses of friends, family, economic security, needed 
spaces for grieving and comfort. Thank you. And then he said this, rarely has there been a time in, in our history when we needed the social spaces around tables where Christians can tend to one another in the Holy Spirit in all these ways. I sure appreciate you taking a bit of risk to, to just be known in these places. So good, right? A lot of resonance there. So as I said, my relationship to social media is still complicated, it's fraught, but I do appreciate when it helps me give shape to a teaching series. <laughs> so this is where uh, this is all going, especially one that seems like just what we need at this moment. And you all, by your hands raised, have sort of given some att attestation to that. As we've been saying, we've been through something here. We're almost through it anyway, like Taylor Swift, who is of course amazing. We're still asking, are we out of the woods yet? Are we in the clear yet? Answer, not quite Tay-Tay, but we're getting there. You're welcome for that. So this series, we're calling The Spaces We Need. And so it's an attempt to prioritize holistic care for each other in the spirit, as well as intentional preparation for re-entry into a new phase of shared life. We want to give attention to the spaces in between. Now, we can't say everything. We can't provide all the spaces, but we can do some things, and we can offer some of the spaces. So in a sense, number one from Fitch's list, which said needed spaces for relational connection, is kind of an overarching or undergirding theme that we've been working to address through our reentry plan even back in June, through in-person gatherings like this, picnics, prayer walks, the newcomer's happy hour. The other four are gonna form the scaffolding for our series, which is just gonna run now through the month of August. And so here's how it'll go. Today, August 8, space for lament, confession, and trust. Next week, space for deconstruction and renovation. The 22nd, space for celebration and hope. Those two will be on the home liturgy on YouTube. And then we'll be back at Japanese Hall for the 29th, where we will offer space for grief and comfort. And I'm delighted that Carrie Reese is going to offer that sermon. She'll be preaching for the first time. So the key question we're going to hold together is, what might it look like to tend to one another in the Holy Spirit in these spaces? Thanks for uh, sticking with me. This is a bit of a longer intro, but three last things by way of introduction. One. When we say uh, spaces for all these things, we want to offer space to actually do them, not just talk about them. So each week, we're going to give a little bit of space and time for shared practice in the teaching moment and or some helps and resources to take away and do in the coming days and weeks ahead. So that half sheet on your, on your uh, chair might have something to do with that today. Two, tending to one another is intentional language. We need each other's help in these spaces. We need to hear each other's stories. We need to be listened to and heard. This isn't just meant to be one-way delivery from preacher to hearer. So please, I ask us to keep these conversations going. Let's offer space to each other. Three, when we use language of tending to one another in the Holy Spirit, this is not just the Spirit getting a little mention like a, a, a tag, <laughs> almost as an afterthought. We, the power of God is not an optional add-on here. It's essential. The space we need most ultimately is space for God. 
So we're not heading into these spaces alone. That's good news. We are entering them with each other. More good news. We also get to enter them with an intentional and growing, deepening awareness of our need for the spirit of Jesus. It's when we try to enter these spaces without a keen sense of reliance on our Emmanuel God that we run into trouble. So are you with me? It's a bit of a longer intro, again, to set up where we're going in this series. So hope you're still doing okay. Now, so why do we need this first space again, lament? What's happened in and around us that we're responding to by offering space for lament and confession and trust? The big picture, uh, the way David Fitch painted it, is we're responding to the anger and rage and sadness, I think, that many of us have felt on a deeper level due to the coercions and abuses that we've seen, uh, that we've experienced, and at times been complicit in perpetuating, whether we realize it or not. So there, there are way too many examples of this to adequately named, name, but I'm wondering if you all remember when COVID first hit, that there was a whole thing about toilet paper. Yeah, remember? As the virus spread across the West, sales of toilet paper skyrocketed by up to 700% from February to March, which prompted psychologists to ask some questions. They speculated, they argued about the reason for the buying spree. I read about a study involving 996 people in 22 countries across Europe and North America. Each was surveyed about how they purchased and stored toilet paper. Participants also ranked the threat of COVID-19 on a 10-point scale. How serious is this? And they took a test that rated them on several core personality traits. Okay, So the habits of buying, storing, the threat of COVID, the rate, and then core personality traits. So those who placed COVID as high risk were the ones most likely to bulk buy toilet paper. People who tended to worry the most about the virus also tended to stockpile, as did people who tend to be more conscientious, those who are future-oriented and orderly. So here are a couple of summary statements from an analysis of the study. It's likely that anxious individuals were hoarding because it gave them a sense of control when so much was out of control. The anxious among us might also have been more likely to wear masks and stay a good distance from others when outside, that is, if they went outside their homes at all. John Swinton is a Scottish theologian who's widely published in the areas of disability theology, spirituality, qualitative research, and mental health. And so in commenting on the outcomes of this study, he said this, while the hoarding behavior may seem especially selfish, you have to remember that anxiety can be a powerful force. If you're super anxious, your brain can be hijacked by that fear. So you don't think about the societal impact. I heard about this study through a lecture that Dr. Swinton offered through Vancouver School of Theology called The Hidden Side Effects of COVID-19. It's now up online. If you just Google John Swinton COVID YouTube, uh, it'll come up. I'm going to share a number of key insights from his talk as we continue here, but the whole thing is really worth a watch. So I ask you, how did you respond to the toilet paper thing? And I want to be clear, there's no judgment here. 
This is just an opportunity for some self-reflection. Do you remember your, your own emotional response to it? Did you feel anxiety and nervousness or fear? What about anger or rage? And whatever feelings you had, how did you cope with them? Did you take to the socials to go on a little rant or share someone else's rant? Did you bury them <laughs> or find ways to numb out to those feelings? Swinton pointed out that toilet paper hoarding is just one symptom of a much larger problem. He then quoted Amnesty International, which claimed that richer countries are failing a rudimentary test of global solidarity by hoarding COVID vaccines. It accused many such countries of exploiting the pandemic to undermine human rights. In its annual report, Amnesty said the health crisis had exposed broken policies and that cooperation was the way forward. Agnes Calamard, Amnesty's Secretary General, said this, the pandemic has cast a harsh light on the world's inability to cooperate effectively in times of dire global need. The richest countries have effected a near monopoly on the world's supply of vaccines, leaving countries with the fewest resources to face the worst health and human rights outcomes. So this prompted Dr. Swinton to wonder how we're doing as Christians in following the horizontal aspect of what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he answered his own question with the sobering realization that we are actually killing our neighbors through our selfishness, through short-term thinking and lack of awareness. Whew. Yeah, it's a hard pill. All of this raises questions about what sort of narrative we're buying into. Do we believe and do we live in a way that affirms our belief that a divinely ordained force of life is at work in the world? Do we believe and do we live in such a way that affirms that belief that God's life force affirms generosity and abundance and denies greed and scarcity? Do we believe and do we live in a way that affirms our belief that a core element of faith is the awareness that creation is a gift that keeps on giving? Listen with me to the opening verses of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And it goes on from there. Let there be sky. Let there be land. Let there be sun, moon, and stars. Let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth. Scripture does not begin with the notion of scarcity undergirding everything. It's quite the opposite. It begins with rocks and trees, with mountains and valleys, with lakes and rivers and oceans, elephants, tigers, and orangutans, 
hammerhead sharks, swordfish, and salmon, red-breasted robins, yellow warblers, and blue jays, also humankind made in the divine image, whom God blesses and then gives a clear mandate, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. I'm giving it all to you. Make something of it. Care well for it. So Genesis paints a picture of a teeming, diverse, ever-expanding universe fashioned by a recklessly loving creator God who infuses every single molecule and atom with abundance. Abundance. That's the world we steward. That's the narrative we received. That's Genesis. It only takes a minute, however, for Pharaoh to come along in the middle of the Exodus story to introduce the principle of scarcity. For the first time in the Bible, someone says there's not enough. Let's get everything. The great king of Egypt, who already holds a monopoly of the region's resources, asks Moses and Aaron to bless him before they go, right? The powers of scarcity symbolized by Egypt admit to this little community of abundance embodied by Israel. Clearly you people, he says, are the wave of the future. So before I let you go, would you mind laying your powerful hands on us and giving us this energy? The energy of abundance, Swinton says. The text shows that the power of the future is not in the hands of those who believe in scarcity and monopolize the world's resources. It is in the hands of those who trust God's abundance. The gifts of life are indeed given by a generous God. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. It's an embarrassment. It's irrational. But God's abundance transcends the market economy. Whew. So, Pharaoh lets Israel go. They start wandering on the, around the desert. Soon they begin grumbling and complaining. God hears them. He rains down food on them. Exactly enough for each day. But Israel had started to internalize scarcity back in Egypt. And so people started to hoard the bread, try to bank it, invest it. When they did, remember what happened? The bread turns moldy. When some translations say maggoty, I just wanted to say maggoty in a sermon. Rotten. Because <laughs> you can't store up God's generosity, it has to be received on the regular. Finally, Moses, seeing all this, says, you know what we need to do? We should do what God did back in Genesis 1. We ought to have a Sabbath. Sabbath. Take a break. Sabbath reminds us there is enough for each day that we don't have to hustle and grind every single day. There's no record of Pharaoh taking a day off. People who think their lives consist of struggling to get more and more can never slow down because they won't ever have enough. Swinton once more, we must confess that the central problem of our lives, the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity a belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. We spend our lives, 
Swinton claims, trying to sort out that ambiguity. Wow. We must confess indeed and repent and turn and change. So here's a first practice space I want to invite us into and to lead you in. And we know if you've been around Artisan for a while, you know confession is not new to us, right? We practice confession every time we pray the table liturgy. We confess we cannot save ourselves. We, we need the presence and the power of God. We just, I just wanted to name that. So also, dear ones, let me remind you that we name and confess sin not out of fear of punishment, but in response to the kindness of God, the one whose perfect love drives out fear. That's why we do this. So I'm going to put up a short prayer on the screen, actually two screens, and I'm going to give you a minute to read through it first because this isn't one that we've rehearsed. I just sort of wrote it this week. And so I'm going to give you a minute to read through it first on your own, and then we're going to go back to the first slide. And if you'd like to join me in praying it out loud, I'll invite you to do so. So let's look at the first one. Just have a read. to go to the next one. Okay, let's go back to the first one. If you would like to join me in confessing this, I invite you to read it aloud together. God, who is slow to anger and rich in love, as the church, both local and global, we have been asleep to or in denial of the systems and structures that keep those most vulnerable from the resources they need. We have not believed in a God of abundance and have instead bought into the lie of scarcity. We have said with Pharaoh, there's not enough. Let's get everything. We have hoarded everything from toilet paper to vaccines. Even in a time of global crisis, we are truly sorry. Give us grace to trust your generosity, to share sacrificially, to love our neighbor deeply. Amen. Amen. And friends, we confess these things with the assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We count on the mercy of the crucified one, the, the embodiment of co-suffering love, who said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So we practice confession, and I think along the way, we've already been doing some lamenting. Do you feel it in your body? We've been doing some lamenting in the process. I just want to say a few more things about lament before we give space to practice that as well. So lament, of course, is not also uh, totally new to us. We've taught, we've preached, we've done retreats on the Psalms, um, of which at least one-third are songs of lament. We practice Lectio using lament psalms. We try to give space for lament in our gatherings on occasion when something's going on in our world that seems that we ought to take a moment and lament together. But I wonder if we need to do it more. 
I'm talking about artisan, I'm also talking about the North American church, the Western church as a whole. It's not something we're all that good at. And if we lament at all, it tends to be fairly private and individual. We've got heaps to learn from our siblings of color about what it means to lament. Rich Villadas, for example, speaks of lament as the spiritually mature response to sadness and sorrow. Isn't that good? So succinct. Soong Chan Ra said, lament recognizes the struggles of life and cries out for justice against existing injustices. Dr. Barbara Holmes is a spiritual teacher, an activist, and a scholar. She's an expert on African-American spirituality, mysticism, cosmology, and culture. Uh, Holmes sees communal lamentation in particular as a healing practice, especially in times of crisis, such as we're moving through right now, emerging from. So let's listen to Barbara Holmes' wisdom together. She writes, communal lament is important for several reasons. It wakes us up, and in doing so, makes us mindful of the pain of our neighbors, who no longer can go about business as usual when the women begin to wail. Their keening rattles both marrow and bone. Who can remain in a stupor with all of that yelling? But lament is important for another reason. The collective wail reminds us that we are not alone. The sheer power and resonance of a grief-stricken chorus reminds us that we are beings of quantum potential. We still have agency in every cell of our being, enough to survive even this. I love so much about this. So a few observations about what lament does. Lament wakes us up. As we've said, we're not well rehearsed in lament, but we are quite adept at numbing to our own pain, which also sadly makes us good at avoiding the pain of others. We need continual reawakening for this reason alone. Lament is disruptive. It interrupts, it upsets the status quo. There's no more business as usual. Lament is risky. It, it challenges power structures. It calls for justice. It makes demands on our relationships with the powers that be, with one another and with God. Holmes says, once lament is released, it cannot be recalled. Lament is risky because we never know until the act is done whether or not we have gone too far. Lament allows the pain to escape and stitches us to our neighbors. Paul calls us to weep with those who weep in Romans 12. Our tears become our prayers when we are unable to speak. Have you found yourselves in that space ever feeling like you, there's no words for what you've experienced or what you've watched someone else endure over the past year? Our tears, says Holmes, are like a baptism, a salty healing, a sign of our vulnerability and a liturgical response to violence. Allows the pain to escape and stitches us to our neighbors. Lament is a collective response to tyranny and injustice. So when we get confronted with the horror of our violence-laden society, the mindless killing of innocence, which again, often stems from our buying into a scarcity mentality rather than one of abundance. 
we shift from individual sobs to collective moans. We do this in online spaces. We do this in public protests and vigils. We do it in songs and in poems and in prayers and in silence. And in a similar way, the Spirit of God, my friends, the Spirit of God groans prayers of solidarity with us. With us. Romans 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. There are no words. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Anyone who tells you prayer has to be with words, send them to Romans 8. In context, this flows out of Paul's teaching that as co-heirs with Christ, we share in his suffering as well as his glory. It's an acknowledgement that suffering is part of the human experience and that the spirit is not blind to our reality. Or as Jesus put it, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Or as we sang it moments ago, I think it was John Foreman who wrote it. So why should I worry? Why do I freak out? God knows what I need. You know what I need. Your love is strong. One more gem from Barbara Holmes. We don't know what will emerge from this time of tarrying. But we do know that something is being born. Like a woman in labor, there is expectation in the darkness, anticipation amid the suffering, hope permeating the pain. Something new is being born, and something old is being transformed. Hmm. So, God who has already welcomed us, let's create some space, interior space for God. Let's practice lament together. As we do, may we actively renew our trust in a God of abundance and blessing. Hopefully on your chair, maybe it's under your chair now, there's a copy, a half sheet, Psalm 85. I invite you to take that now. Just spend a few minutes with this. So I mentioned earlier that in the Psalms, about one-third um, have our laments or have lament kind of portions in them. And there are individual laments. An example of that is Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? We spent time with that one before. This is a communal lament. We've got we and you and us kind of language in it, and there are several of these in the Psalms as well. This one's a little bit interesting because you can see the way it's structured. I've just used a few kind of key ideas. The first couple of verses are about past mercy. And then there's the present estrange, estrangement or distance, a sense of abandonment. That's the lament proper, verses 4 to 7. Then there's an implied pause to listen. Because verse 8 says, I, I, I can't wait to hear what he'll say. So silence needs to precede when we go there. And then the last aspect is the prospect of shalom, the prospect of harmony. What a beautiful description of, of shalom in those last verses. So what I'd like to do is just read this, 
If you would like to read along with me, you are certainly welcome to do that, to read aloud. You're also going to give you the option of just sitting with it and listening. After verse 7, right in the middle, we're going to take a brief pause, not a whole minute, just a few seconds, um, just to symbolize our posture of listening. And then we'll carry on um, and read the rest. So let's just be with this communal lament. It's right there in our scriptures, and we'll do this in this way. So if you would like to read along, you're welcome to. Also feel free to listen. God, you smiled on our good earth. You brought good times back to Jacob. You lifted the cloud of guilt from your people. You put their sins far out of sight. You took back your sin-provoked threats. You cooled your hot, righteous anger. Help us again, God of our help. Don't hold a grudge against us forever. You aren't going to keep this up, are you? Scowling and angry year after year. Why not help us make a fresh start, a resurrection life? Then your people will laugh and sing. Show us how much you love us, God. Give us the salvation we need. Brief pause together. Continuing, I can't wait to hear what he'll say. God's about to pronounce his people well, the holy people he loves so much, so they'll never again live like fools. See how close his salvation is to those who fear him. Our country is home base for glory. Love and truth meet in the street. Right living and whole living embrace and kiss. Truth sprouts green from the ground. Right living pours down from the skies. Oh yes, God gives goodness and beauty. Our land responds with bounty and blessing. Right living strides out before him and clears a path for his passage. It's good to be with these ancient prayers that have been prayed, prayed by the people of God through millennia. A couple of ideas you could take this with you, you could put it in your journal, take some moments if, if that's one of the practices that helps you to connect as well uh, in an individual basis. Um, pause after each section and just, just continue writing. What else would you add? Uh, you can put this up on the bathroom mirror. You know, some, uh, maybe on the fridge, some space where you go and it's just something to keep in front of you this week and uh, offer space of lament um, to yourself, to those with you in your house. So thanks for holding this space uh, together. I want to invite you now to the Lord's table, at least symbolically. We will hopefully be able to start serving communion uh, soon, but we want to pray our table liturgy together and uh, invite you whenever you eat and drink this week to remember Christ's presence with you by the Spirit. So I invite you to respond with the bold text as we walk through this, and uh, we'll continue on in our response of worship. The gospel is the good news. 
God, our Father, the Creator, who is great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin.